everyone, and welcome to this session of the 2021 Adelaide Writers' Week. My name is Ashley Hay. I am beside myself to be here in real life with you all today and very excited to have the chance of talking to Stephen Conti about his wonderful new novel, The Tolstoy Estate. Before I introduce you properly to Stephen and his work, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, the Adelaide Plains, and that's the Ghana people. And to acknowledge, too, the custodians of the lands of people who are joining us for this conversation from other places today. I recognise and respect the Ghana people's cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land, and I acknowledge that these things are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. I'd also like to acknowledge the elders of this place and this continent, past and present, and to acknowledge to the millennia of stories and storytellers that have been here. It's a particular privilege to be together to share our stories here today. I have to say some COVID things as well. Um, it's wonderful to see everyone and um, everyone needs to make sure that they stay physically distanced. Thank you for leaving all those empty seats between each other. Um, it's crucial as it's a key condition of the COVID management plan that's been approved by South Australian Health. Um, so before we start, and especially for people standing or around the edges, can you please make sure that you move apart from the people next to you and maintain that social distance? Um, thank you very much. We're also going to ask you to support our authors by buying books, of course, as always. Um, the books for this session can be bought from the quick sales counter over at the book tent, and there'll be a book signing session after this. So Stephen Conti's debut novel, the Zookeeper's War won the inaugural Australian Prime Minister's Literary Award for Fiction. It was also shortlisted for the 2008 Commonwealth Writers' Prize for Best First Book and for the 2007 Christina Stead Prize for Fiction. The Tolstoy Estate is his second novel and I am delighted to tell you that it's one of four Australian novels long listed for the 2021 Walter Scott Prize for Historical Fiction. When... <laughs> Thank you. And when I asked Stephen if there was anything in particular that he'd like to talk about or not, he said, let's talk about the obvious thing, why there was so long between those two books. But we're going to, we're going to come in at that a little bit later on. Because I'd like to start in your pre-book life, Stephen, and a line I saw in one of your biographies that talked about you studying literature as a civilian at the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra. And I'd like to start by talking about conflict, and particularly World War II. Now, conflict is a necessary part of any narrative arc, but World War II runs through both Zookeeper's War and the Tol Tolstoy estate. What draws you particularly to that time, that sort of specific space of that, that conflict? What, what makes it such a fertile space for your imagination? Thanks so much, Ashley. Um, I think partly it is a generational issue. There'd be a lot of people in this crowd, I think, whose lives have been very directly shaped by the last big mm -hmm. war. Uh, and certainly, you know, just on a personal level, I had a, uh, a stepfather who was uh, uh, in the Merchant Navy uh, running the convoys to Murmansk. And, uh, and also my father happened to be on the other side uh, uh, an Italian uh, doing guard duty in the port of Toronto. And so I've got that direct kind of family connections. But in a more personal level, I think my own upbringing uh, is perhaps a bit glib, but, you know, having grown up in a, a boys' boarding school, it, I was naturally interested always in these... Uh, narratives, I mean, particularly in the Holocaust, it seems uh, self-aggrandizing to compare, but I feel like I immediately had a, uh, an instinctive understanding of what it is to, to live under a system of coercion, uh, <laughs> an enclosed system. You know, a lot of American and Australian literature is about our encounter with bro the broad open spaces. Uh, but, you know, my, my experience as a, as a, in my formative years was much more stereotypically European, uh, being in a situation where I was circumscribed uh, both socially and geographically and topographically. And so, yeah, these, these uh, senses of, uh, of these European experiences were, were, spoke to me and, mm. and, you know, just the extraordinary 
drama, the fact that all of these ordinary people got to live the good and ill, epic lives, you mm. know, and in every possible climb from the, you know, the Arctic Sea to the African desert to the Papua New Guinean jungles. So it's just always uh, grabbed my, uh, galvanised me. Mm. Tell us where we are with the Tolstoy estate. And I want to start with the landscape. So we're in a particular piece of Russia. It's 1941 and winter is just about to start. Now, both the place and the weather are incredibly rich characters in a way, in and of themselves, not just in the way you bring them off the page and really bring them to life, but also in the way they direct and impact what what can happen and what can't happen for the characters in the story. So can you talk to us a little bit about just where we are and what sort of climate and atmosphere we're in when we're in the Tolstoy estate? Well, when you open to the first page, you are stuck in the mud, which is very much <laughs> touching on what I was talking about this then. Uh, only just conscious now that uh, perhaps I was writing autobiographically there. <laughs> um, but, you know, for those who know a little bit about the war on the Eastern Front, uh, one of the reasons the Germans fortunately failed in their endeavours was uh, being literally seized by the Russian Rasputitsya, the, the, the rainy season, and actually their vehicles and horses and so on being bogged down in the mud, and that's how the novel begins. Mm. And... Uh, and you know, just as an aside, I got the pleasure of researching that with a with an expert uh, historian who who was writing a book about the two weeks between the October the fifteenth and October the thirty first, nineteen forty one, in which he maintained Germany lost the war in a three hundred kilometre uh, stretch of the Russian front. So <laughs> I got down into the weeds with my research. Uh, so once uh, my hero Bauer uh, arrives at Yasnaya Polyana, the ancestral home of Leo Tolstoy, uh, winter quickly sets in, and of course it's what the Russians refer to as General Winter, who is, yes, a, a character, if you like, uh, this literal force of nature mm. in the book. And so it's, it's, of course, unimaginably cold, and I'm a writer who loves to express what it is to be embodied, and so I got a lot of joy out of describing the stinging sensation of sleet on the skin and just the, 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 the freezing experience of, uh, of, of nostril hairs crackling uh, or tears streaming out mm. of the side of the eyes and, and, and freezing. freezing on the face. And so, you know, I've got a, a lot of joy in writing those, those sorts of sensations. I think you achieved something marvellous because I live in Brisbane uh, and it's been, you know, kind of 32 degrees and about 900% humidity recently. And I was cold reading your book, so I think that's an incredible... You know, I can't give kind of higher praise than that for bringing a story to life, frankly. Um, but I have to ask you, because another line that jumped out of me from one of your um, biographical notes was that you undertook a 3,000-kilometre hitchhike around Europe at one stage. And I'm wondering whether the Tolstoy estate was one of the places that you visited during that time or if you got to go there during the making of this book? Uh, so the answer to the, both those questions, alas, is <laughs> no. Uh, I did the classic Australian thing, or it used to be a classic thing, of, uh, of travelling uh, around Europe and hitchhiking around Europe for a whole year. Uh, and that was the occasion of my meeting with Berlin. I, I did right. uh, settle in there and was absolutely compelled, which became the, uh, the inspiration for, for my first novel. Uh, but uh, my sort of interest in Yasnaya Polyana, this, this uh, Tolstoy estate, actually came from, from my reading uh, mm. and a particular uh, amazing book by the daughter of Marie Curie. Uh, her name is, uh, was Eva, Eva Curie, who was already famous uh, in 1940 as the audit, her mother's biographer. And she escaped the Nazis ahead of the invasion of Paris, went by various steps to 
New York and was given a job by Time magazine to tour the war as it then was. The Pacific War had not yet begun and had an extraordinary experience of this intrepid lady reporter travelling almost Casablanca style by flying boat to West Africa and then travelling to, uh, to North Africa meeting Randolph Churchill, Churchill's son, uh, and then to Tehran meeting all these extraordinary people, including Mahatma Gandhi, and then was given a tour of the recently liberated Tolstoy estate just two weeks after its liberation. And it was her description of uh, the awareness of the Russian custodians and their description that, that both they, as custodians of this semi-sacred place to the Russian people and the Germans who were there, were aware of its uh, ideological importance mm. and also it's, it's metaphysical importance because Tolstoy being the great national poet of n Russian resistance to the foreign invader in War and Peace and the Napoleonic invasion, that everyone there had a real sense of what was at stake and that Tolstoy himself was this overarching, omnipresent uh, figure in those narrow six weeks of occupation of the estate. Mm. I want to come back and talk a little bit more about um, Eva Curie because I just think that's a wonderful thing and, and also the, the sort of elements that feed into the book. But I'd like you now to introduce us to the people that we spend time with in this book. Now, there are, there are the two central characters and you've mentioned the first one, Paul Bauer. He's a surgeon. Can you tell us a little bit about him? So. Paul is, in some re respects, I realised as I was writing through this book, is the, the man I would have liked to have been. You know, uh, uh, he keeps his head in a crisis, for example. <laughs> and he is uh, thoughtful and measured and just through and through a decent human being. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and he is a sort of a reticent figure and so something of a risk... Uh, to have a main character who is not all singing and dancing. Mm. But I wanted him to be a reflect, uh, a sort of self-reflecting type of person. Uh, and in some ways he subverts the stereotype of the, the hero surgeon, uh, which his colleague, uh, Colonel Metz, definitely falls into that category. But I, I wanted Paul to be this sort of slightly quieter observer, be partly because of Katerina Trubetskaya, who is the acting chief custodian of, uh, of the estate, of Yasnaya Polyana, when the German arrives. And, you know, when you're writing a novel, sometimes the personalities of the individual characters suggest the personalities of mm. the people they interact with. And, and so Paul and Katerina definitely play off one another. She is fiery. She is ferocious. She has 20 years of frustration and disappointment against the Soviet regime, having been a young, idealistic communist. And she's had to press that down, press that down. And when the Germans arrive, she's strangely liberated to express her rage. And so she, you know, risking her life, gives them constant, well, tongue lashings <laughs> and just it gets it all out there in a kind of quite a reckless way. Mm. Uh, and... And uh, so those are so those are those two characters that sort of extroverted over the top. Wonderfully, it's fantastic, of course, to have a powerful woman character and also a character who is got feels she's got nothing to lose and, and is willing to say anything because that's mm. a great thing to encounter on the page. I think. I want to come back to Paul for a moment because Paul is a German surgeon, but you are at pains to. It's not just to say that he's not a Nazi; he's part of the German machine. But he's also, you know, he's so far from the shorthand for a German Nazi character or the sort of stereotypes um, that we have in place for that. Can you talk a little bit about the shapes and I guess the kind of latitudes that you wanted to allow for Bauer? And I'm really interested here in whether there were any particular models that you had for his character or traps that you knew you had to avoid in creating quite a sympathetic character who is aligned with this historical shape that we have very clear ideas and images about. I think for readers and writers who, in a sense, have grown up um, in the allied, formerly allied nations, mm. the Second World War is our 
Homeric time. It was a time of comparative moral clarity. I mean, at least the appearance of comparative moral mm. clarity in a sense that it was largely a just war. Uh, I feel as, you know, both my novels now have been, have, their central characters have been German or at least living in Germany during the war. And I've, I've found that more um, ethically, morally interesting, what it is like to be by and large, a good person, a decent mm. person, but um, labouring in for an unjust cause, and uh, and I think that is relevant to us in the current day. I mean, uh, I can't be the only one in this crowd who's had qualms about what's been done in the name of Australia in the Middle East, for example. Mm. You know, um, but in that. It, I, of course, don't, didn't want to just um, uncomplicatedly have Paul as just a perfect human being. Mm. Sure, he voted for the Social de Democrats in the, the last available German election. Uh, he has progressive commitments uh, and ideals. And, and that, that is not, I believe, whitewashing the reality because uh, there was certainly a, a, an enormous chunk of the German population who... Uh, who's certainly anti-Nazi, at least initially. A lot was swept up by the, the excitement. Um, so I wanted... Uh, I just watched Sigrid Nunes before this, and she talked about um, embracing the, the full humanity of characters. Mm -hmm. I just wanted that complexity. And I suppose I was more conscious with the other characters mm. uh, that I didn't want to whitewash the fact that the majority of them were, if not pro-Nazi, then certainly unthinkingly ho hopeful of a, of a German victory. And so I have minor characters and secondary characters who are, who are in many ways sympathetic, uh, some of them a couple of comic characters who nevertheless are just unthinkingly uh, or casually anti-Semitic, for example. Mm. Uh, and so I wanted to make sure that the, the reader was aware that this was happening in a, in, in a context of... Uh, of Nazism, but also to avoid some of those Nazi stereotypes. There's a, I don't know how many people remember, there's a, one of those British comedy duos, Smith and Jones, and halfway through the writing of this book, I uh, unfortunately came across uh, a sketch that they did of different types of German generals. And uh, if you're at all interested, I urge you to look it up, because it's a series of German generals walk into a room and explain their stereotypes and, you know, one comes in and says, I am a lover of uh, fine music and an admirer of beautiful women. And another comes in and said, well, I am a strict one who constantly hitting the table and demanding to speak to the Führer <laughs> on the phone. Uh, so that almost paralysed me, that sort of awareness <laughs> of, of just how many uh, cliches mm. and stereotypes there are. But uh, hopefully I've tried to uh, engage with the full humanity of these people. Well, I think that's one of the lovely things. I'd just like to come back to the spectacular Katerina Trubetskaya for a moment, um, because I think in, as you say, she's she's someone who lives with, she has, she's come from a, a certain background. She's been swept up in the communist revolution. She's been so palpably engaged with that pursuit. She's been absolutely disillusioned. Um, and in, in the opportunities that that allows her to speak, she is, she is addressing big issues in history and big sort of, you know, positioning statements, but she doesn't, she's not sort of lecturing or hectoring from the page. It's all part of her life story, part of her narrative. Were there particular stories or particular ideas, I guess, that you really wanted her to embody without reducing the humanity that she has, but the sort of, you know, the intellectual drives for her character, I guess, in a way. Well, there were two big areas of research that I needed to get my head around in order to write this novel. I, I felt that I had a fairly good understanding or a handle on German culture of the era, mm. having sort of done a lot of research about that before. I, of course, needed to look into war surgery and... Uh, I definitely have to talk about uh, Bauer as yeah. a surgeon. Uh, but the other big area was an er something I was relatively ignorant about, which was the Soviet culture in which Katerina had grown up in. And so I did do a lot of research about what it was like, particularly in the 1920s, and discovered all sorts of things that 
weren't apparent, for example, that uh, in that er very early phase of the revolution, it really was being driven uh, or largely or to a great degree by the intelligentsia. And so the Soviet Union in the 1920s became the first place in the world to decriminalise, uh, not South Australia, but the, uh, but the Soviet Union to decriminalise homosexuality, for example. And there was uh, an incredible sense of possibility and... Uh, intellectual curiosity and excitement and tumult mm -hmm. and I definitely wanted Katerina to uh, to convey all that what it was to be in a regime that actually for the first time at least on some levels was giving agency to women mm -hmm. and also then the, the 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 immediate roadblocks that she discovers that uh, that her fellow male revolutionaries still wanted her to do the uh, the laundry and the washing up uh, so all of that was important to um, bring to life a, a particular moment before Stalinism came and, uh, and put everyone back in their box, often quite literally. Mm. Um, there's a beautiful line attached to the proofs of the book that I was reading, and I know it's one that's resonated with a lot of reviewers so far. It talks about the story's exploration of the notion that literature can still be a potent force for good, in our world, a sort of repository of saving grace in dark times. I'm wondering, does that line, that idea, have a different resonance for you or for your readers after the past 12 months, a very, very different kind of disruption that people have been through? I think the connection there is that uh, my attraction to the Second World War is partly, as it commented on before, is this sense that um, it was arguably the last event until perhaps last year that the, the, the vast majority of people in the globe experienced one thing mm. uh, and what it is to be picked up and shaken by the scruff of the neck by an historical event. Uh, so I don't think the pandemic... It, well, you know, there's obviously many people who have been uh, have lost their lives and, and been profoundly affected, but it's not uh, so far, at least, had the, the absolute world-shattering consequences of World mm. War II. Uh, but I think that uh, I want the, the the novel Franz Kafka. You know, has that famous image of the of fiction. Uh, being an axe to break to open the ice, the ice yeah. of the soul. And, you know, that's certainly what I see myself doing is, uh, is to just remind uh, readers of our true circumstances and how we can just be picked up and shaken about by events. And, uh, and yes, also the consolations, of course, mm. uh, that, that, uh, that literature can help remind us. I mean, at one stage I have Katerina reflecting on on the sadness that is the coinage of a rich, richly lived life. Mm. And, you know, that is also present, the, the tribulations, but also the rewards and the, the meaning we draw from life. The other line I love, um, which is your own, is the description of the novel as a dark Teutonic version of MASH. Would you like to talk about that? <laughs> Well, the first thing I can say about it is that um, my, what I've experienced with uh, delivering that line, experimenting that, with that line, is that um, it it's immediately sums up the novel for everyone who, I, who is 35 <laughs> years and over, and it means utterly nothing <laughs> to those who are 35 years and under. Uh, so, yes, MASH has, uh, has, after a long time, died a death, and, uh, and apologies for the young people in the audience, but it is... For anyone who doesn't know, it's about a, 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 an American field hospital in, in the Korean War. Uh, a, 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 a sitcom, really, but one that does touch on deeper and darker issues. And, and the Tolstoy estate is uh, darker by a couple more steps again. But, uh, and I don't honestly to this day don't know whether I was being influenced by MASH or whether the idea of a field hospital is, a, is has intrinsic humour. I think mm. that medical people, there must be many medical people in the audience, you know, there's a kind of gallows humour that uh, that happens at the end of a, of a eight-hour, you know, let alone a 37-hour uh, mm. operating session. And so one of the surprises that I had as an, as an author was to discover... Uh, the characters cracking jokes and mm. and and in, uh, and just finding some sort of relief in that. So uh, there's the mash connection. 
I was very happy that I didn't read that line until I'd finished the book because I love MASH and I love Alan Alder, but I, I would have probably put him into Paul Bauer's person, which might not have, you know, would have complicated all sorts of other things I think about Alan Alder. So um, I want to come back to the Eva Currie book just for a moment um, and also to... That's, that's such a fabulous, uh, you know, single starting point for the book, but also to ask you where all of the other elements or the, the, the sort of little pieces of character and the little moments of situation that you bring together into this one sort of fantastically crafted whole, this, this, this hothouse of a situation in the middle of a horrific winter, just if you can talk to us a little bit about where those elements all started to come from. I guess the other sort of research that you went to after Eva Curie's book. Yeah, so as I've touched on, there was the Russian research and, uh, and there's a lot of scholarly work on that and, uh, and memoirs uh, as well by, by Russian intellectuals who you know of the, of the, of the era. Uh, really strikingly, the, the war surgery. I found a couple mm. of uh, memoirs by British surgeons who had, uh, you know, f uh, had sort of been in these operating situations in the, on the Western Front. And, uh, and in addition to that, a sort of a photographic record of the German mm. uh, mil uh, medical corps. Uh, and then, of course, you know, there's a lot in here that's strangely... When you do get those specific moments that, mm. are, that are personal... Mm. Uh, I mean, as a, I've obviously had my imagination shaped in a really profound way by military matters, even though I'm a, you know, a physical coward and so on. I, I, as a child, I played toy soldiers and then I played uh, complicated war games. And a novel represents a complicated war game in the sense that you have, you decide on a setting and I decide first on my mm. setting and then you bring the pieces down and then you play them off against one another. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, that, that, that's, uh, once you build a world, then things begin to su suggest themselves. And so, for example, at one stage, I have Katarina taunting the Germans that, you know, you've got no idea about how many of us there are. If every Russian came to the front line and tossed his and her hat at you, it would take you three weeks to climb over the pile. <laughs> that is an anecdote that was told to my step stepfather, is... British sailor in the port of Murmansk who was saying, yeah, sure, we're going to win the war. The Germans yeah. have no hope. So, yeah, you that. know, you kind of build from what you have to hand and what you've read uh, the, the specifics of that world. I want to come back uh, to the specifics of surgery in a minute because I know that's something you're keen to talk about. But just before we do, I think one of the most compelling parts, not just of the structure of the book, but of its power as well, is the intersection, the collision, I guess, of two very big moments in history, very different. One is the life of Tolstoy, who of course is dead by the time the Germans arrive, and the other is the invasion of Russia by Germany in that winter of 1941. Can you tell us about the excitement and I guess also a little bit about the process of finding what might happen when you jam two big historical things up against each other like that mm. and, and what sort of comes out of the crucible of that intersection? Well, in some respects, the idea of jamming two of anything mm. together arguably is the definition of creativity. Two disparate things or apparently disparate things. I, I tend to think that that's what metaphor is, really, uh, that to bring it down to a sentence level. You have... Uh, 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 some common item or concept and then you just bring it to life, mm. magic it to life with some analogy that just leaps out of your mind and, and, and something beautiful uh, occurs. And, and that's a wonderful thing. I think a novel is a machine that actually generates that kind of excitement by juxt juxtaposition. Mm. And so once, uh, once I discovered uh, Curie's story... I unearthed, what leapt out at me was my own teenage reading of War and Peace. Mm. And, you know, it was by far and away the most precocious thing I ever did, <laughs> trapped, a reading thing I ever did, you know, trapped in a boys' boarding school looking for salvation, uh, finding War and Peace and, and then, you know, it having a big impact, but I, not realising what a profound impact it, it had had until, you know, all but 
40 years later, uh, discovering uh, Curie's story and suddenly these two, these two disparate ideas colliding and, uh, and just, I suppose this the analogies uh, were so suggestive and, and I don't, I hope the novel doesn't overplay it, but at one stage Bauer, for example, uh, is sent 15 kilometres away from the estate to the front lines, and he experiences what it is to, you know, have lice in the hems of his, uh, of his, of his clothes, and and the typhoid, and the, mm. the, the, just the freezing cold conditions that make everything, from you know, excreting to cleaning weapons, all but impossible. But on the way, you know, he sees off through the misty uh, Russian steppe these distant uh, uh, forests. You know, and they're looking like uh, Napoleonic, massed mm. Napoleonic formations of green-clad soldiers. So, uh, yeah, there's the wonder of uh, evoking this, uh, this synchronicity and history repeating itself, and uh, it was just generated all sorts of wonderful opportunities to write. And I think there's a lovely way in, as you say, that synchronicity, the way in that scene particularly, it's as if Tolstoy's historical novel in all senses of the world is being brought to life in the landscape in which it was set and there's all those lovely moments of sort of magic and transference that happen when we read things and when we then carry them with us into another place or another time that's a very exciting sort of space to be in well the book is also about in a sense literature mm. and and it's about our experience of literature and, and it's the way that uh, each generation of writers and readers sort of builds on the experiences of, of what's come before mm. and, you know, this whole notion of standing on the shoulders of giants and uh, I'm certainly uh, perched up on uh, like some sort of parrot on Tolstoy's <laughs> shoulders or on his coattails or something. And, uh, yeah, that, that is, that is a, a theme of, yeah. of the book, uh, this engagement with literature and its meaning. I want to come back to your own relationship with Tolstoy in a minute, but I wonder if now is a good time to talk about the time between those two novels, The Zookeeper's War and The Tolstoy Estate, and, you know, what's been happening in the 13 years 13 between years. then and now. Well, this is my first um, opportunity to uh, promote the Tolstoy estate in person. So I've, I've given a little bit of thought about this, you know, expecting, and I have encountered this question in various Zoom events and so on, and I've decided to experiment today with candour. <laughs> um, so there are really four reasons, I think, that there's been a 13-year 13, uh, 13 gap, and one of them is a failed novel. I wrote a novel that no one was interested in. The other is a failed marriage, <laughs> which is uh, very time-consuming and distressing. Mm -hmm. And I also became the father of a son with severe autism. And the fourth thing if you, uh, is the depression and anxiety that flowed from all of those other three to make one thing out of that. Mm. And I decided to mention that today just because I think uh, people don't come to writers' festivals to hear rubbish, do they? <laughs> we, we come to hear something approximating the truth. So those were the circumstances. Life gets in the way and I'm... Un Unfortunately, not one of those speedy authors that turns out a, a mm. book every year. Do you, what, do you think too, and, and this is a happier question to ask now that the Tolstoy estate is sitting in front of us, but what you think of as the failed novel, was it a thing that was necessary to write to enable you to make the shape of this one? Were there any parts of the method or the process that you went well it didn't work but you know that was a great step to take because now I need to deal with Katerina or now I need to deal with the entire German army was there anything that you know sort of carried through um there's a sort of a fad in uh, uh podcasts and so on about entrepreneur entrepreneurship <laughs> and productivity that says you know there's no such thing as a mm. as a failure and you must fail to uh, in order to succeed and and I guess there's some truth to that in the sense that uh, you, you learn humility. But I'd say there weren't many saving graces, actually, <laughs> about not having a novel unpublished. Um, I did, of course, get the opportunity to continue to hone my craft and to explore my preoccupations, including, you know, what it is to be in, to be in the human body and so on. Uh, the the uh, opening chapter of my unpublished novel is, uh, for the, anyone who's interested, is the, uh, uh, the 
Spencer Tunic nude photo shoot ah. on Prince's Bridge in Melbourne in 2001, in which I participated and was moved to write. So yeah, there are those. So there's this experience of being in the body, and uh, and then it comes out, of course, in in the Tolstoy estate. Fantastic, thank you. Um, I want to come back to the war. Uh, and I, and I want to come back to surgery because I know you're keen to talk about that. But one of the um, the powers of the book is the way the war comes off the page. It's not just the characters that are alive in this book. The war itself is palpable. Um, and I think that's partly because you do such a fantastic job of bringing us into the mechanics of it. There's one line that, you know, I, I probably will never forget was your um, observation of a particular military assault that started at six o'clock in the morning and having the first casualty arrive at 6.48. And that gives you an absolute sensation of a lot of things just at that level. Um, there's a sense too, beyond the, the line about MASH, there's a sense too that we are behind the scenes of the war, in a way, with these particular men. We're not on the... Well, Paul gets sent to the front line, but mostly um, we are with the people behind who are sort of supporting those great savage efforts out the front. And the field hospital, which is a really interesting space for a hospital to sit in, is often just reacting and responding. It doesn't really have a chance to repair, which is, you know, what we more usually think of hospitals as doing. And all of this is, is just part of the sort of strange process and calculus and tedium, in a way, of war, which is quite a shocking thing to think about. How do those sorts of particulars, I guess, not just vivify the scenes, but how did they kind of drive the movement of the story for you? That there is this awful never-endingness of what the men are going through. Paul's operating sessions, you know, it can just feel like it's never going to stop. But, of course, it is going on. The story is going on. How did all of those elements kind of weave around the large fact of the war itself? Well, I think, you know, once again, the wonderful thing about novels is that they... Gener in a sense, they, the, the shape of them generates their own excitement. Mm -hmm. And so you, you put a character in a situation and it, uh, the character then has to respond. And, and I mean, I just, perhaps this is to be a bit tangential to your question. When, when Paul does uh, go to the front line, he is shown around uh, to uh, where the wounded are, are taken mm -hmm. initially. Uh, to what the Germans would refer to as nest for the wounded. And, uh, and then the, he's shown, okay, and then they're taken to this hut a few hundred metres behind the lines and, and then they go to uh, the, the, uh, the, the bandage station and then they're put on trucks and taken back to the field hospital. And, and he has this image of these system of capillaries mm. uh, of, of literally this blood being drawn back uh, in, the set, in the third or fourth, fourth instance to Yasnaya Polyana, where he is mm. ordinarily a surgeon, and then from there to base hospitals further back and then back to, to, back to Germany. Mm. Uh, so, yes, I, I guess which is to say the way in which the, the, the war imposes a structure on these men's experience mm. uh, and, you know, utterly shapes the reason they're there. Uh, so I, I'm, I guess, does that really answer it, what you're driving at? It does. It's just I think it is the, the sort of minutiae of this thing that we think of at such a scale, but yep. that it does come back to it's this step and then this step and then this step, which might be the field hospital, but then it is just all these processes and structures with this utter um, chaos yeah. <laughs> driving it. I mean... Um, Two disparate things that I want to just throw in. Uh, at one stage, at the beginning of one of the large assaults, Paul is actually in bed. It's 5 a.m. Mm. and the guns open up and, uh, and he describes the, the vibration of the guns travelling 15 kilometres through the earth, through the foundations of the building, mm. up through the floorboards, into the, the iron bedstead of the bed that he's on and shaking him awake. Mm. So, yeah, it's, I want it to be very uh, present... Uh, yeah, the, the other thing about it is just, um, yeah, the, the, the practicalities of the mm. wounded that you're describing. Mm. You know, there are men coming back 
uh, with their eyelids frozen off by frostbite, condemned to look upon the world. And, mm. and, and Paul has to speak to them and he has no idea whether there's going to be reconstructive surgery available for them back in, back in Germany. Mm. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's just that. I think that um, example you just gave of the guns, you know, and the way that you bring that right into the person of Paul, that's one of those fantastic examples of just how visceral the writing is and how you make us feel the world that you're in. Um, I've got an eye on the time, and in about five or ten minutes, uh, we're going to give you the chance to ask Stephen your questions. So start thinking about them. There's a microphone in the middle if you are keen. But I'm going to, I've got hundreds here, so I'm going to keep going for a little bit longer. Um, one of the other through lines for the book, and I love this particularly, is Paul Bauer's disappointment in his anaesthetist, whom he really just, you know, well... The man is genuinely not up to the job, but Paul has a, you know, it's his ongoing campaign to try and get something done about this for the sake of his patients. Now, as I say, your, your descriptions of the surgery and the conditions and these men, because there are no female nurses allowed at the front, they're extraordinary. But I want to sit with the idea of anaesthesia for the moment, because it, it, and maybe sleep works the same way. It's it's just this this capacity to slip out of time for a while, but then the necessity to come back into the reality of it. And it made me think about the way reading operates like this as well. You know, we slip out of our world into the world of the book and we, we sort of come back in. Now, the books also work that way for Paul and Katerina during this novel. Can you talk about those moments of escape? They felt like moments of respite or miracle somehow, just how they worked in the story for you? So, s literally uh, hours after arriving, or an hour or so after arriving at the estate, uh, we first meet Katerina, who just leaps up uh, and challenges the Germans. And uh, she uh, mets uh, Bauer's mad commander, um, insists she take them on a tour of the, of the, the Tolstoy house. And she has got, uh, she takes them to the library and picks up a German translation of War and Peace um, and then literally hurls it at Metz and says, here's your fate, this is what's in store for you. And uh, Metz refuses to engage and Bauer, who's a literary, um, you know, he's a surgeon, but he's also uh, uh, a, a, a keen reader and so on, he, he sort of surreptitiously grabs hold of this book that, that Metz orders to be burned in the incinerator. And, uh, and, that, and, and he takes up the challenge. He rereads it for, because he has read the book at the mm. age of 14 and takes up the challenge of reading this book and, and does so over the six weeks of the occupation. And it is his only respite and he's an insomniac and so he has the time. Uh, and, uh, and then these... Uh, uh, Katerina is un unwillingly ends up engaging with this man and uh, they have this uneasy friendship that develops between them and then, of course, something more. And, uh, and so, yeah, this becomes an oasis, as you say, for, for them. It's this little space of respite that this shared, shared love of mm. writing and, and literature. I think one of the other really fascinating parts of the book, and I don't want to talk about it a lot because I want you all to read it and, and sort of unravel this bit yourself, but there are other escapes going on. You know, the men are finding other ways to escape reality um, or, or maybe, you know, kind of augmented a little bit now and then. And that's a really fascinating subplot, I guess, which is, you know, is driving what's going on in this little bubble as much as the war is driving everything around it. Mm. Yes, when, during my early research, I discovered uh, this, what I thought was this fabulous hidden detail was the, uh, the degree to which the German military forces of Wehrmacht uh, were abusing or, or using amphetamines uh, in their conduct of the war. Uh, and, uh, and actually, towards the end of the war, uh, the Allies used it as well. For example, in the D-Day landings, uh, the parachute units and other units were given amphetamines to stay awake for three days. The, the three days, they needed those men mm. operational for three days without any sleep. And of course, no one was much concerned about the health consequences. And so, yeah, there are various uh, of, of uh, Bauer's comrades who, who are users and abusers of all sorts of 
substances and cocktails. And, uh, and you know, it was halfway through the writing of the book that uh, a, German, uh, a German author actually wrote a, uh, a, a book about this very phenomenon that became quite prominent, mm. which was translated into English as blitzed. <laughs> uh, so uh, it's less, uh, it less my discovery now, but uh, I did, did come to it first. <laughs> um, I'm going to sneak one more question in before I open up the microphone for you all, and, I, and that's to come back to this idea of literature, because some of the most beautiful passages in this book, and, and maybe they resonate with me because I'm a writer as well as a reader, but some of the most beautiful passages in this book are about books themselves. They're about the ways good books outflank their authors. Um, they're about the ways that literature, if it exerts any sort of influence, often exerts an influence that's so subtle and so slow. Um, they're about the writerly conviction that the world needs the writer's voice in its ear. What were the feelings that you took with you and found as you wrote into the space of Leo Tolstoy, who's a pretty big writer to kind of grapple with on the page, um, War and Peace. And as, as you sort of found the shape of your book in relation to the shape of him as the earlier author and that other book, War and Peace, as the earlier book. Yeah, so it's a, it's a dialogue with, uh, which is, it's terrifying to contemplate, you know, dialogue with Tolstoy uh, and about that, his that capaciousness of his mm. of his imagination and his compassion. I mean, there's a scene that uh, Paul and Katerina describe uh, from an early skirmish, well, a small battle by Napoleonic standards, in which extraordinary scene in War and Peace, in which uh, a, a single artillery officer in the Russian army holds off this enormous French attack, and what Tolstoy demonstrates or writes, and I'm not even sure if he, if he understands what he's writing, is a, a gay character. This artillery officer is a sort of a stereotypical, effete, uh, effeminate, uh, whether he's gay or not, who, uh, as I say, Tolstoy possibly doesn't know, but he's thinking, hmm, where do I point the cannon now? <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, over here, he's, he's sort of treating it almost as an artistic uh, 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 moment. So, you know, Despite what, whatever limitations Tolstoy might have had uh, writing in the, his era, his, un, his compassion for his characters, his compassion, for example, for Natasha Rostova uh, being a 23-year-old woman who is, you know, he can't say it, but it's clear off the text, is, is so touch-deprived, mm. so sex-deprived as a 23-year-old version that she is lured away from her fiancé by a, a cad and a, and a bounder. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I guess I'd just like to think that I'm carrying on uh, his example in my small way and, and the example of George Eliot, for example, the high priestess of empathy, mm. uh, in, in actually encouraging literature to, to imagine others' lives. Um, if anyone does have a question for Stephen, I'll ask you to jump up um, to the microphone. There's an odd process of disinfection that has to happen between each uh, question, so please don't be alarmed if something gets squirted near you when you've asked your question. Can I also do my regular thing of saying I would love it if your questions could be short and questiony, please, rather than anything else? Could you finally tell us something now about the surgical procedures? <laughs> So the yeah the, the the pleasure of that for me was being uh, someone absolutely um, preoccupied and interested in 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 the body and and in medicine and being a, a mild hypochondriac. This it's it's just grist from my mill and and a sense in which this was a book that um, I'd like to think uh, without whatever its merits and its failings that only only I could have written that I was the child of, uh, of a doctor and a nurse. Uh, I was the one who read War and Peace when he was 14, precociously. Uh, I was the one that had this interest in, in, in fiction and, and, and uh, literature. And so um, I got to write this amazing scene, which was based on these real experiences of surgeons who were the only ones there and just had to keep operating until there were no more patients. And in this case, and you know, uh, certainly a, a long session, 37 hours, but this was, they had nothing else to do. They had to keep going, otherwise people would just die in the waiting rooms. And, uh, and, and wanting to 
actually give a sense to the reader in a way that I hoped was not going to be boring. I wasn't bored writing it, and, and readers have been kind enough to say that they found it galvanising mm -hmm. and, and, and absolutely riveting as well. Uh, you know, one operation after another in the describing them and, and you know, towards the end, summarising them, and just one damn thing after another damn thing and this damage and the variety and horror, horrific variety of the damage done to the human body. So I got a, a you know, a, a perverse kick out of writing that scene and it, carry, it carried me through. And I think too, you do an amazing work at sort of going from the, you know, the macro of the room full of men dealing with this, people, you know, coming in and out of consciousness, crises happening all over the place, but then, which might sound a little ghoulish, into the micro of a particular wound, of the wounds that Paul reads correctly, of the things that he reads incorrectly. You know, you're giving us the sense of the physical space that we're in as well as the physical bodies that are that are moving through and the equipment and the noise and the smell and the, these are very rich, evocative spaces that you do sort of experience in a particular way as a reader. Mm, thanks. Next question. Um, I've read your book and loved every word of it, um, but I had one query. The, um, there are bits in the book that occur later than the Second World War, uh, and I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't read it, uh, but there's things that happen in 1968 and so on. Um, there's obviously something which occurred in 1969 which is dismissed in half a sentence. Um, I would have liked more elaboration on that. I wondered whether uh, that was deliberate, that it was just dismissed in half a sentence, um, or whether you just got tired of writing about it. <laughs> I very much wanted to give the reader, uh, well, two things. I wanted to mimic uh, the, the, the massive scale of War and Peace. I couldn't do it in terms of writing as much. I didn't uh, have Tolstoy's ability or endurance, but I wanted to give the reader that sense of lives lived over, not uh, intensely, over a six-week period, but also over a span of decades. And so, yeah, Mike, thanks so much for the question. Uh, I do introduce this, this uh, where are they now? Because I think it is an enjoyable satisfaction that you know, we mm -hmm. have from Victorian literature, for example, we have uh, people's uh, lives neatly tidied up and, and we get that satisfaction. But I didn't want to do it in a uh, too easy a Victorian way. So that is the answer I wanted to uh, uh, not just have it all quite neatly tied up in a bow, I wanted to have it alluded to. And, and hopefully f the reader feels it more by having having said less, mm. yeah, that, that uh, merits of understatement. So that's the answer there. Was there a, an incident in 1969 that you were only giving us a small amount about? Yes, but we're not going to discuss okay, it Okay, great. Fantastic. <laughs> Have a chat with Stephen afterwards. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the next question. Uh, hello. Um, I haven't read your book yet. I'm very excited to. Um, but listening to you, I just wanted to say how amazing it is, how you intertwine history and inspiration from other authors into your work. And I was just wondering how you kind of go about doing that as well as incorporating your own ideas. Thanks so much for the question and for being someone that presumably doesn't know about MASH. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I've... I've mentioned a few times the way that, um, that novels have this magical way of building themselves, that once you throw in these, these disparate components and then you start to fill in, uh, fill in the spaces, you, you, you can't suppress your own input in a, in a sense. Your own, you, you have no choice but to put your own imprint on it. Uh, I've, I do... I mean, this is a novel. It's, I think it is a risky manoeuvre in which the characters talk to some degree about ideas, which mm. is a bit of a, especially in the middle of the last century, was a bit of a taboo. But I think that that's what people do. I, I wanted to actually strive for a bit of realism in that, that people do sit around and discuss ideas. And those are often the most important discussions that people have in their lives. So without overdoing it, I wanted to in include that. And it was just incidentally a fa fabulous opportunity for me to mouth off. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, you set up the situation, you set up, you build the vehicle, and it takes you places. Next question. Thank you very much for your talk. Uh, 
I'm sort of guessing that you might have done a bit of a review of Tolstoy's work in preparation. Did you find that perhaps you had a new favorite? Um, was it that you found that other Tolstoy's books really spoke to you in a way more than just War and Peace? I, I, I've struggled uh, in the first reading and then subsequent reading with Anna Karenina, and I give my questions uh, about that, no doubt, stupefying book. I mean, Tolstoy described Anna Karenina as his first novel because he liked the, 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 the conceit that War and Peace was a, a type of a, a history, a history book. But, um, but Katerina has what I, you know, is a, is a gendered analysis of, in particular, uh, Anna Karenina, and, and, and the frustration that I too have felt, and, and feel too with, say, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, that sort of sense in which the, the women characters are just doomed uh, to, to live out a Greek tragedy. And at one stage, Katerina says, look, Greek tragedy has no place in the novel. The novel is about ordinary people, not about these heroic people. And that, in a sense, uh, the farce of someone uh, embodied in a character like Julius Metz, uh, Bowers' commander, is more, more appropriate to the novel. Uh, so I, I, I had that engagement with uh, Tolstoy's treatment of women, both the amazing compassion he shows for some of his female characters and some of the limitations of where he's coming from and also had a new interaction with the characters of War and Peace. You know, of course, uh, writing from middle age, my feelings for the characters had shifted from my initial reading. Thank you. Um, we've got five minutes. We're just disinfecting. We've got another question. Here we go. Thank you so much for your talk today and I look forward to reading the book. Um, I wondered what other... Russian novelists influenced you or inspired you, um, like the other Tolstoy, you know, Vasily Grossman's novels, um, which I'm a great fan of. And I'm wondering yeah, if you were influenced by his writing or any other Russian novelists at the time during the World War II. The answer to that, thanks so much for the question. Uh, uh, Vasily Grossman, definitely. I mean, on that, you know, the, the, uh, the life and fate, you know, echoing mm. war and peace as a title, is ex just in its sheer scale, mm. uh, is mm. extraordinary. Uh, also, uh, Sherlockoff, um, I'm having a mental blank, um, Mikhail. Mikhail Sherlockoff, who wrote And Quiet Flows the Dawn, mm -hmm. which is a sort of series of novels about the Russian Civil War. That certainly was a big influence. Once again, we're talking about this epic scale. I guess the author who is, is absolutely in, in the Tolstoy estate too and shadows the book, not to the same degree of Tolstoy, and, and who also shadowed Tolstoy is, is of course, Dostoevsky. Mm. These two novels, novelists were these giants of world literature, not just Russian literature, were contemporaries and never actually met. They shied away from meeting like some of these... Some, some of these competitors sometimes do. Uh, and yeah, I, he has had a profound influence. And I was, there's a scene in which um, Paul uh, volunteers to help deliver a baby in the local village uh, of this uh, woman who's going to die if, if she doesn't have medical attention. And you know, uh, he, Paul is in, the, in this dark hut with the smell of cabbage and smoke and and there's uh, a screaming mother and, uh, and an old crone and, uh, and, he, and he has this sudden sense, I'm in a Dostoevsky novel, this is, <laughs> this is crazy. So, look, to gain off a whole range of, of, of Russian influences. Thank you so much. Okay. I look forward to reading you. <laughs> Thanks so much. I'm going to sneak one last question in before I let you all go because I, I, it gives me the chance to read out um, a beautiful passage that you give to Bauer. Uh, when he's thinking about the consolations of war and peace. And you write, whatever the fate of individuals might be, Tolstoy seemed to say, the rhythm of life would remain the same. The young would be foolish, hopeful and wild, would fall in love and out of it, become sadder, maybe wise. Some would meet their death sooner than others, yet there would come a day when everyone engaged in the struggles of their age would, without exception, die bequeathing the world they had made to those strangers, their children, 
who would struggle to change it again. Now, I love this passage. I think it's extraordinary. It's something that speaks out of the space that Bauer finds himself in into, you know, I would imagine a reader in any age. Is that your sense of its sort of universality? Yes, definitely. You know, uh, once again, you know, referring to something Sigrid, Sigrid Nunes just mentioned, you know, she said it certainly as she gets older, perhaps the only topic is death. Mm. I mean, it's certainly a master, a master theme in, in all literature. And, and I was thinking as she was speaking that, you know, it, by providing a full stop, it gives meaning to our sentence. Mm. And, uh, and so it's, I think without without death and the prospect of it, that that's what gives a sense of urgency and grandeur and meaning to all our lives. And and it was very important that you know that thing that that those themes that are evoked so powerfully uh, by Tolstoy that I would also have my own modest attempt to evoke. Um, I need to do the COVID bit again now that we're, we're at the end. When you are moving around the garden, moving out of here, um, especially when you're making your way to the book signing where you'll find Stephen uh, and the catering, catering area, can I please ask you to maintain the social distance rules and follow any directions from the marshal? Um, we have come to the end of our time together today. I would like to thank you so much for being part of this conversation with Stephen Conti. You can keep talking to him in the book signing queue. Um, and also, of course, you can keep talking to him through the pages of his own work, Writers Need Readers, at the end of it all to complete the book in a way. Would you join me now in thanking Stephen Conti for his wonderful conversation today? Thank you. Thanks, Ashley, and thanks, everyone.